All right, would you grab hold of your Bibles tonight? Time to study God's Word. Open to the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, as we are studying through the book of Ephesians, and we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 3. The title of this series is what? Blessed. And we found that out beginning right in verse 1 through uh, 3. As we uh, see, this is the overarching outline for the whole book of Ephesians that we're using to prompt our study. And we are currently at the very last part of the believer's wealth. And uh, as you can see there in chapter 3 uh, through verse 21. And so tonight, I know it sounds impossible, we're going to cover the entire chapter 3 tonight. Right, we're going to do it. All right. And then uh, starting next week, we're going to start talking about the walk of the believer. Paul gets very, very practical. He's been up in the heavenlies talking about all kinds of really heavy, heavy stuff up to this point. He's getting ready to get very, very practical, and uh, we'll have a good time doing that. So, want to read from Ephesians chapter 3. I have posted this here on the, uh, on the slide display for your um, viewing, but if you have your Bible in any form, uh, then you can look at it as I read. For this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery. The mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Verse 8, although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. This is, uh, Stacy quoted this uh, at the beginning of worship tonight. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. 
And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and grounded or established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Wow. Isn't that a powerful chapter? I feel like we just close down right now and go home, right? God's word does not return void. Amen? Here's what I'd like to do. Chapter 13 is intriguing in this regard. It's hard to uh, nail down one clear theme from chapter 3 because Paul kind of gets all over the place in chapter 3, doesn't he? And so I find that there are multiple topics and themes he covers. And so what I've done is kind of divide this up a little bit and uh, it, it won't maybe have the same kind of sequential concrete order that some of uh, his writings do, but I think we'll all gain from it. The first thing I thought we might do is look at the four views, in the first 13 verses particularly, the four views that Paul, the Apostle Paul shares that not only speak to us, but these are really his self-perspectives. This is how he views himself. If I could just pause here for a moment, uh, in, the, in the area of leadership that I have uh, done quite a bit of studying and training and, and, and teaching in, uh, one of the most important foundation stones of effective leadership is what we call self-awareness. Self-awareness in the leadership arena simply means you understand some things about yourself. It's really difficult to lead someone else well if you don't know yourself. And you'd be shocking, shocked to know the number of people who really don't know themselves very well. They don't have what we call self-awareness. And because they don't, they walk around blindly trying to lead other people. Self-awareness is a critical beginning point for any kind of effective leadership in, frankly, in life. Paul makes very clear he has a very well-rounded perspective on himself and he reveals it right here in chapter three and so i just thought i'd point out four perspectives that apostle paul has about himself the first one is what i would just call a christ-oriented perspective that's probably not the best label for it but it's the best one i could come up with and he says it just right here for this reason i paul the prisoner the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for your sake, for the sake of the Gentiles. I'll just stop right there in verse 1. He says, I'm what? A prisoner of Jesus Christ. 
let's just refresh our memory. Where is Paul when he is writing this particular letter, scribing this letter to the believers over in Ephesus? Where is he? He is in Rome, in prison, awaiting an appearance before Nero the Caesar. This is what we fondly call a prison epistle, a prison letter written from prison. Granted, the imprisonment that he had in Rome was a self-rented. That's pretty bad when you go to prison, you have to rent your own house to stay in as your prison. But anyway, Paul did that. He rented a house there in Rome and lived there in that house. Had a guard assigned to him. And that from that location, he did his writing to several churches, several of the epistles. This is one of them. But what's interesting is that Paul doesn't say, Hi church, I'm writing to you from Rome. As you know, I'm a prisoner of Caesar. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. What does that tell you about him? He has this perspective that says, I know what it looks like. I know that most of you think, poor Paul, he's up there just hanging out in Rome as a prisoner because they won't let him go. He's in chains, he's in bonds. He's a prisoner of Nero in Rome. Paul says, what you don't understand is, I'm, I have already stepped back and gotten a divine perspective on this situation. I'm not here by mistake. I'm not in prison for any error. This has happened because why? I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm committed to him. I'm bound to him. I, I'm a prisoner simply because I'm serving him. I have a feeling he probably from day to day and week to week thought, you know, maybe the whole reason that I'm here is to give myself reflection time so I could write some important scribe, some important communications to the church of which you and I today benefit from because it's a part of the New Testament canon. Wow! Paul had this divine viewpoint of his circumstance. And I thought, what a wonderful lesson for us. How many times do we complain or we look at ourselves in a human perspective rather than a divine perspective maybe sometimes like paul we need to push the pause button and say why am i here what is god seeing what is his perspective about my circumstance or my predicament and we might instead say i am this not for the u.s government not for Dell Computers, not for Regent University. I'm this, fill in the blank, because that's Christ's assignment in my life. That's what he has me doing. Isn't that a great perspective? So the first one is a Christ-oriented point of view that we see right off the beginning in verse 1. And by the way, later you may have noted, but Paul once again returns to his most common view of himself, which is what? Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. But here, he switches to a prisoner. The second is, he shares some important things as a revelation, or I just call it the revelation of a great secret. The revelation of a great secret. If you notice, even in chapter 2, we touched upon this in chapter 1, but you see that this is a common theme throughout Ephesians, which is what? The idea of the mystery. 
the mystery. I told you this before, but in case you missed it, the word for mystery in the New Testament is the Greek word mysterion. And it is, it is not, it is, sometimes we get confused because we think mystery has to be something that is forever hidden. This word comes from uh, Greek, classical Greek use for people who were part of, um, shall we use a more contemporary language of a fraternity or a club. And in that club, there's certain things that are unknown to everybody else. They're unknown to the average individual. But once you're on the inside of the club, you get to learn the secret. The organization's secret code or secret message or secret handshake. You know what I'm saying? Now, nobody else would know when I shake hands that way with Rick that anybody knows what's going on, but that was really, anybody on the inside knows, I know what he's saying. Carrie and I have those kind of cues. I won't go into them, but we have those kinds of cues. No one knows about it, but those that are part of our family. That's the, what the word here means. He's basically saying, there's a secret. That I'm responsible, that I, it has been revealed to me, this secret. But he's saying it's not a secret for you, for, for those of us that are part of the body of Christ. Because once you become a member of the body of Christ, once you're born again, once you're a part of the church, you get it. The light goes on. You get the secret code, the secret handshake. And what is the secret? It's the fact that God's love and mercy was not just to include the Jews. That God's lavish mercy and love was for all mankind. It's for everyone. Anybody could be a recipient of that, not just the Jews. Paul declares in Acts, God declared to Paul in Acts, after he called him with the laying on the hands of Ananias. You remember the story. God said to him, you are called to open up the eyes of the Gentiles. That was his calling to open up their eyes to this mystery. The mystery of what? That God's love, His mercy is available for all of us. You have to remember how radical this mystery is, was. Jews, their attitudes toward Gentiles were harsh. They looked at Gentiles as literally useless, worthless. The only thing that Gentiles, it was written by certain Jewish scribes, historians, the only thing that Gentiles are good for is to receive the punishment that's coming to them from the Jews. The word actually used to refer to a Jew in New Testament time was a, not a kind word. I know they're pet lovers here, and so you might find this difficult, but they referred to them as what? Dogs. And it's not a favorable term. Dogs. So what's the point? Paul's saying, this revelation has come to me. It's a secret of what? Gentiles are accepted on the same par with Jews. I think something that's important to realize here when Paul talks, he's talking from his own, some things about himself. And he said, this is not a discovery. This is a revelation. A discovery is something anybody can have. 
Anybody can make it. A revelation is something that somebody has to give to you. This, what he was saying is, this is something that came to me through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and he gave me this insight. I didn't have this before. It wasn't something that through hard study and work, I made this discovery and now I'm bragging about it, boasting about it. No, this is a, a mystery that was once hidden for the ages, but the Holy Spirit has come and he's cleared it up for me. There's no more fog, no more confusion. And it's my job to make it known to all of you, particularly to you who are non-Jews. It's not a discovery. It's a revelation. Then the third thing, view that Paul shares about himself is that he's a transmitter of grace and wisdom. He says here, and I won't turn to these other scriptures, although I did note them there, just time won't allow me tonight. He says here, according to the grace given to me. According to the grace given to me. Listen to what he says verse 2. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Do you hear that in verse 3? This has been given to me by you. Again, verse 7, I became a servant of the gospel by the, what? The gift of God's grace. Literally the word there, charismata. The gift of God's grace. I have what I have, my ministry. He said, I'm an apostle. I'm a minister, a servant of the gospel. But it wasn't something that I just signed up for. I didn't just enlist to be that. It was something that came to me as a recipient of God's grace. All throughout the New Testament, you see this use of the word grace that's far different from what we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. When it says, by grace are we saved through faith. That grace has to do with saving grace. This grace is a different side of grace. This is an impartation. It's a gifting. It's God's grace. I heard many years ago someone define grace this way, and it's simplistic, but it's very accurate. And it's simply God's grace is always God's grace willingness to act on my behalf. Paul said, you know my past. God gave me a grace. It was God's impartation to me. His grace, he it's an enablement. Something, when grace comes to you, it releases ability. When grace comes to you, it releases joy. The root word for grace is actually joy. The word joy. Charis is grace. The root word for grace is car, which means joy. Imagine that, the connection between grace and joy. Listen, when you get a hold of God's grace, joy comes with it. When you get God's grace to be what he's called you to be, whatever that is, when you receive his grace to do something, it comes with joy. It comes with a sense of this isn't from me. This is God's grace. Listen, we can never do anything that God puts in front of us without His grace. The grace given to me. Even in Romans chapter 12 when it speaks, it says to each of you, to every one of us has been given grace. That's not talking about saving grace. It goes on to describe gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
the motivational gift of service or prophecy or teaching, ruling, and on and on. Why does he do that? He says, because those are simply expressions of grace. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Churches many years ago, had a phrase when he talked about the spiritual gifts. He said, these are literally gracelets. Just a word he coined. A gracelet. Like a little gracelet. A gracelet is an impartation of grace to do something. I love that phrase. The grace of God. Paul's talking about here. I didn't deserve it, but I am not only have I been the recipient of it, but now I'm called to be a pipeline of God's grace to you. I'm a channel of grace. Think about this. I'm a channel of grace, a transmitter. God's grace has always existed. What we're lacking are people who are willing to obediently accept the responsibility to transmit it to other people, to be a channel of grace to others. God's always been full of love and mercy and grace. But what we're lacking are people who, along with the Apostle Paul, can say, I recognize that I have some sense of grace, which we should all as believers have, to represent God's character to people. He said, I'm a, I'm a channel of that. Don't keep what God's given to you selfishly. Don't hold on to that selfishly. Be ready to give it out. Now, I must point out, he says here that he has the responsibility as an administrator of the grace. The idea there of the NIV uses the word administrator. I can't remember what the King James uses there, but when it talks about this administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, the word there literally is the same word that we get the word steward from. So he's saying, I am one who has a management responsibility over grace. We have to steward God's grace. I love verse 9. He says all, in verse 8, I'll start there, although I'm less than the least of all God's people. That's, that, that's a profound statement of humility, isn't it? There's one place in Scripture Paul says, I'm the least of all apostles. Here he says, I'm the least of all b- believers. And there's another one he says, I'm the least among all sinners. Wow, he keeps taking steps lower and lower and lower, doesn't he? For, just think about what that is for Paul, the apostle Paul, who God used to do so many phenomenal things that we are blessed tonight to read and study a book that's anointed by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but used by the pen, the hand of Paul, and he's saying, I'm the least of all God's people. And you might say, not true. But it's, not, it's not an argument about whether it's true or not. The point is, it was his attitude. That was his heart. It wasn't just talk. I hear a lot of people today, they have phrases and lines that they use that that come across as humility. But I believe this was genuine. How do you really feel about yourself? You can always tell whether someone's faking it. Paul wasn't faking it. He said, I'm the least of all God's people. Any of you ever felt that way? And then he talks about the wisdom of God. And I just have to touch on this before I go. Watch this. Verse 9, and my job was to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. There's the word there, administration, again. It's the idea of stewarding. 
house management. The idea there, the phrase, and to make plain to everyone. The word there for make plain, you have to forgive me, but sometimes the original language just demands a little explanation, all right? To make plan, plain here literally means to shine a floodlight, not just a flashlight, a floodlight to turn on a big floodlight and it's all of a sudden the intensity of this grand light shines down and all of a sudden you're like, whoa! That's what he said his job is, to make plain something. Just like flipping on a switch of a grand floodlight. And then he goes on to say this, it's been hidden for all these years, and watch this in verse 10. His intent was that now, in other words, God's planned this all along. He has a plan. He has a purpose. Now through the church, can everybody say church? Through the what? Through the church, keep this in mind, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is going to be shown forth. I have to stop and tell you what this means. It is so powerful. The word there, manifold. I mean, who knows? Who, who understands what that word means? manifold that's even in the niv it uses the word manifold the word let me tell you what it means it means many sided multifaceted literally the word means the many colored it was your a word to even use garments that had a whole lot of different colors in the garment it's the many faceted many sided grace of god I'm sorry, wisdom of God. And Peter, Peter uses the same word. Only two times used in the whole New Testament. Peter uses the word manifold to describe the grace of God. It's many-sided. Here, it's used to describe what? The wisdom of God. It is the multi What that simply means is it is more complex than you can imagine. The, the wisdom of God is so amazing, so rich, so deep. You can't, it, it, it's not just a matter of just one window into it. You've got to look at all these different facets. It's like this beautifully cut diamond that now is so brilliant, made brilliant by what? It was always a diamond. But now that it has all these special cuts, I've had a chance to be... Uh, to walk through and take a tour in Antwerp, Belgium, of the diamond uh, finishing, diamond cutting industry there. It's amazing what they do to bring out the brilliance of a diamond. It was there all along, raw form, but it was through the cutting of it. That's the word that's used to describe the wisdom of God. Multifacets and cuts, different angles, different ways to look at it. God's wisdom is so rich, so deep that you've got to have a special cut, a special look. You look at it one way and you go, oh, wow! And you look at it another way and you go, whoa, I never saw that before. You come at it from another angle, you go, wow, God is so wise. The wisdom of God. Look at this in the Word. Oh, did you see this? That's why it'll never be exhausted. Never will we exhaust the wisdom of God. But watch this. How is the wisdom, this many-colored, many-sided wisdom to be known? Through what? The church. Stop. We have to stop. I mean, that's, come on. There's no way. The church has fell on tough times. People always are, everybody's anti-church. I hear it every week. People say, oh, well, I, I don't do church. Or I gave up on the church. But here, Paul is saying that the church, 
has been given this amazing responsibility to show forth the many-sided wisdom of God. How? His plan always has been, always God's plan was that what? He wanted a collection of people that would be so in love with him, that would be so tight with him, so connected to him, with him, that, he would, that all they'd have to do is show forth his many-sided wisdom. Get this. You've got to see this. Go back right to the text. Listen to what it says. They're going to make known uh, his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to who? Watch this. To the rulers, NIV says, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It simply is speaking about demons. I don't have time to be nice about it. Demons. What? God's purpose was that through a collection of people whose lives are knitted together in faith and in grace, God wants to show His wisdom, His insight. He wants to manifest it through us. We're all different, so it's going to come across with many different sides and facets. And who is it going to impact? Demons. Isn't that amazing to you? You need, you, need to, you need to meditate on that this week. That is powerful. Through us, we're supposed to be so reflective of God's wisdom and understanding and knowledge that it makes the devil mad. That it upsets demons. I wonder, we're falling miserably short in this area, folks. We're supposed to demonstrate the wisdom of God so that the devil goes, whoa, I'm in trouble now. We've got a lot to do to show forth his many-sided wisdom. I've got to go on and finish. Those are the four views of Paul. Look at this verse. Verse 10. I, I, I forgot this. I had this slide up here. I wanted to show you in two ways. But again, it simply puts it in the New Living Translation. The purpose of this enlightenment is that through the church, the multifaceted wisdom of God should now be disclosed to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. And it's 1 Peter 4.10 where the word manifold or multifaceted used again. That time it's used to refer to grace. Just a pretty picture. All right, chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. Let's wrap up, all right? <clears throat> he repeats in verse 14. It's almost like he pauses here and he comes right back in and this is what he said. For this reason, it's like Paul always wants you to know the reason. For this reason, what he just talked about, for this reason, I am kneeling before the Father. I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Or one translation says, for this cause. This is a wonderful statement of motivation. And also it's a picture of what the church should be like. Because what Paul is saying here is, uh, and, and by the way, his posture here is one of prayer. He makes it very clear. He says in verse 16 when he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, the word there for prayer is on my knees kind of prayer. It speaks of a posture of prayer. On my knees I'm praying. Literally it means prostrate. Now the Hebrew, there was a certain Hebrew way of praying which was always, does someone know? The, the default way for 
Hebrews Jews to pray, always standing and hands lifted like this towards heaven. All of a sudden, Paul says, man, for this reason, I'm, I'm praying and I am laid out. I'm prostrate on the floor praying for you. This is so important. For this reason, I kneel and I pray. Verse 14 and 16, the reference is there. And so he gives us this emphasis on the importance of knowing why, what the cause of God is. You and I, our cause, our mission is to carry his message of love to every single person. Notice the emphasis on the fatherhood of God. I listed there several verses, verses 12 through 15, you will see emphases there on the fatherhood of God. He says, he talks about God being the father of Jesus Christ. He talks about the father in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 3, verse 12, and also chapter 2, verse 18, in whom we have access. He always wants to make sure that we don't think of God the Father as distant. He always wants to make sure we understand we have access. We never, ever need to be hesitant to approach the Father, to lovingly embrace the Father. Why? We have access. How do we get access? Through Jesus, right? We have access. And then he adds, he's the father of all glory in verse 14. And then later in chapter 6, he says he's the father of all. And another reference, he talks about father for all fathers. The idea of the family, whenever you read about the family, you can't have a family without a father. We're the family of God. And we have a father, a heavenly father. And it's just emphasizing how important it is that we connect to the fatherhood of God. Our fa- Families take the name of the Father, right? We have taken the name of God our Father. What an important emphasis, and I'll wrap up with this. Paul mentions in the end of chapter 3, three specific requests for divine resources. Time doesn't allow me to go farther, but I'm just going to mention them to you very quickly. Number one, he prays for a strong inner man. I pray that out of his glorious riches, in verse 16, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit. Where? In your inner being. In your inner being. He prays that you and I would have a strong inner man. I find a lot of Christians don't even know they have an inner man. There's the outward man, Involves my flesh, the part of my mind that's not yet sanctified. That's the outward man. And then there's the inward man. The inward man is your human spirit, redeemed by the Holy Spirit, along with the part of your mind that is renewed, the part of your will that is totally surrendered. There's an inward man. That's the where the kingdom of God is. The inner man is made up of everything that the king has active rule over in your life. From the inside out. But then there's an outward man. So the whole goal of this Christian growth is what? That the inward would win out over the outward. That's usually our struggle, isn't it? When the outward man, outer man, gains more power than the inner man. But he says, no, I'm praying that you're going to get a strong inner man. If you could just picture that the inner man is, you just have to picture it like this man on the inside of you. The question is, how strong is he? Is he a weakling? Is he doing his exercises? Is he being properly fed? Always think, what's going on with my inner man? 
Paul here is praying for us. Praying for our inner man. That it's going to be strong. And then he adds that in verse 17, that we would have the abiding presence of Christ. I love that phrase. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Isn't it good to know that Christ is in our hearts? Through the Holy Spirit. But he's in us. And he wants him to dwell. The idea is to have to be comfortable and at home. Fully abiding in us. Some, some Christians are, are, are so barely saved that, you, that Christ is hardly, hardly visible inside of them. He said, I want you to, have the, to be aware of this abiding Christ is in you. And then he adds, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. You could talk for a long time on that, couldn't you? All the dimensions of God's love, the sheer vastness of His matchless love. He says, I can't just limit this to one dimension. He even goes beyond 3D. He goes into 4D. <laughs> okay? Okay? He says four dimensions. He says the, the scope or the breadth of God's love, the depth of God's love, the length of God's love, the height of God's love. Listen, God's love is greater than any of us can imagine, and we all need to grow in our comprehension of the multi-dimensions of His love. We'll never exhaust it. I hope that you'll spend some time this week as I've encouraged you to study and read and spend time along in the book of Ephesians as we're studying it, but I'm going to conclude now tonight, but I really want you to get all you can. There's so much more there, as there always is, than we have time to cover. Can we stand together and pray? I must uh, use the doxology. Um, there is a doxology or a closing statement or a closing hymn. That's what the word would suggest. There is a doxology used as his benediction to chapter 3. And it has been shown historically that churches used to say this. In fact, I think I'll just turn back and we'll say it. Yeah. Starting in verse 20, this is the doxology. It's a statement that we can say together. And it's a great note to end on. Can we just say it in unison? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we all ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.